Hi, this is Greg Lamond, and you're listening to the Velocast at the 2016 Tour de France with Scott Raw, John Galloway, and Ashley House. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Velocast analysis of the 2016 Tour de France. Today might have been one where the GC guys would have expected to sit back, relax and let the lower orders get all hot and bothered in the long dock sun. However, when opening the curtains in Carcassonne this morning, the first thing any rider with GC ambitions would have noticed is tot flags and bent trees being knocked about by the Mistral's northern cousin, the Tramontaine. And it would be a fool that would ignore the chance to profit from the possibility of echelons forming in the peloton, and some might argue a bigger one that allowed himself to be inattentive. But regardless of which way you look at the somewhat unexpected GC battle today, no one could argue that Petr Sagan was a deserving winner of the day's very, very difficult stage. Fascinating to watch the stage play out. I mean, we saw um, very, very similar scenes to... You know, when the stage we were talking about yesterday, when Armstrong managed to put some time into Contador, as we saw echelons form across the road. The fascinating thing today was that the changes in direction meant that you moved from sidewind to, you know, cross uh, tailwind, back to sidewind. So the echelons were very, very fluid. And I think it was those changes in direction that meant none of them stuck because it got so close when we saw particularly Thibaut Pino stuck in the second group um, and most of the leaders in the in the front echelons. It was so close to sticking, got to 40-odd seconds, but ultimately came back together for what... With, you know, maybe 20k going, I thought, oh, we're just in for a fairly dull, you know, bunch sprint. And then all hell broke loose. But even before that, I was, you know, glued to the screen because we had the kind of racing that only comes from, you know, the northern uh, bits of, of Europe where the North Sea and the, the, the winds that come off that can rip the peloton apart. Or, you know, the very south where you can have the Tremontaine or the, or the Mistral and... Uh, you know, very, very far from a dull transitional stage. Bike racing at its very best, I think we saw today. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think we were given a very early indication of, of what we were about to get when we saw riders like George Bennett and, and Thibaut Pino crashing earlier on and having... T- to spend a, a great deal of energy and, and do a, a huge amount of work just to get back on on what was, you would think, just a, a fairly innocuous crash. But it, it took them a fair few kilometres to, to reach the back end of the, the peloton. Uh, we had a, a break of two riders, Arthur Vichio and Lee Howard, out for some distance. And, and like yourself, John... When the early echelons formed and then came back together, I was led to believe, right, maybe this is going to just settle down because there was a lot of little towns they went through, which obviously nullified the effect of of any splits so the peloton were able to come back together. And I'm thinking, well, are they just going to sit, settle down and it'll be a bunch sprint at the end? And then I looked at the, the, um, the distance to go and I'm thinking, 50 kilometres, even if there were, you know, really serious crosswinds that would split the peloton up that's a hell of a distance for any GC guy to try and make a difference here if this is going to go it will be with about 15k to go and I actually tweeted you know the peloton's starting to look a bit stretched GC guys need to pay attention here 30 seconds later bang Petr Sagan ably assisted by teammate Bodnar 
put in an attack off off the front and you just saw Chris Froome going, I'm having that and went with Geraint Thomas and you, the poor Geraint Thomas must have thought, what, seriously? Now? Uh, Geraint Thomas was chewing his stem trying to get on Chris <laughs> Froome's back wheel. I mean, and, and it was, there was a look of genuine panic in his eyes where you thought, as you say, he thought, oh, jeez, we're not having to do this. I've been racing in echelons all day to try and keep you in a decent position, man. I'm looking forward to, you know, my baguette and some tea. Uh, but what we saw was essentially two teams working against the peloton. The two things they did have, which nobody else had, was Peter Sagan, um, who, you know, is, is clearly a, a sheer powerhouse at the moment. Like, watching a motorbike go, I mean, just incredibly impressive. And you had Chris Froome. And Sagan himself said, you know, I thought to myself, we are too strong, they're never going to catch us. We just pulled very hard and it happened. And I think that sums it up perfectly, because, the you know, the gap got up to, what, 25, 26 seconds. And even when it started to drop, and it was only, what, six seconds at the end, it never, ever looked like they were going to, you know, going to get... Uh, hoovered up by the peloton. Sagan is, is just a force of nature. Chris Froome himself is clearly willing to take a chance whenever he can. And I would say that, I mean, somebody said to me earlier that, you know, it's a foregone conclusion already. Um, it's pretty dull racing, which... I, what? Often, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> often I find myself agreeing when you've got, you know, somebody who's clearly stronger than the rest. But when you look at the risks that Chris Froome took in that stage eight descent, when you look at the sheer effort and intensity and focus that he put into today's four-man break, which saw him take second place and, again, some bonifications, as Sean calls them, uh, behind Peter Sagan, the stage winner, if he was so convinced that whenever the road turned upwards... And we've already seen that at Arculus, remember. You know, if he was so convinced that whenever the road turned upwards, he'd engage his washing machine spin and everybody would casually drift off his back, why the hell would he be taking these chances? Why the hell would he be making these efforts? Why would he be taking the risks that he took on that descent which saw him take the stage? This is a man who's aware that this is a close race and who is snatching every single second he can. In the manner of the great racers, this reminds me of nothing more than 19... 89 tour, which I've often talked about. But, Thank goodness know, for that. I thought you were going to give us a reference that wasn't in the 1980s there, well, and I would is. have been shocked and stunned. 1989, 1993, you know, they're my two favourite tours for, for anecdotes. But do you remember when Laurent Fignon, I've said this before, and Greg LeMond were up the road? It's exactly like that. You're seeing a yellow jersey who is snatching every opportunity to get seconds. Now, if he was confident, if he thought this was a foregone conclusion, you would not be seeing this. What we're seeing is proper bike racing, and I'm loving it. Do you know, I'd actually go further than that and and say that what Froome is doing here, and we saw it specifically, I think, with his post-race interview on on stage eight, where he, he snatched those seconds and, and took everyone by surprise with the descent he, he made um, off the final climb. He's just having so much fun. And I think that that, you know, that, that realisation that this is a close race, but also wanting to do things that are unexpected because you can have fun doing it, are, are what is making this race all the more entertaining to watch. I couldn't disagree any more with whoever it was that said this is boring racing because that descent will go down in tour history. And I think that that attack today was 
just just absolutely made the stage. The threat was there since, as I said in the intro, the riders opened the curtains this morning and realised that the wind it's was windy. blowing. It was immensely windy. And everybody knew the potential for, for Echelons was there. Everybody knew there was a potential for some GC uh, action on a stage that really shouldn't have GC action. And the only person who was able to profit from that was, was Chris Froome. And I'd suggest that he was just having a bucket load of fun doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he looked like he had fun. I tell you what, though, earlier in the day, I was really surprised to see uh, Trek Segafredo doing so much work. I mean, they clearly thought their man was in with a good chance if it came in from a sprint. BMC, you know, they were they were visible. The people who were most notable by their absence, of course, were uh, Actually, we restrained before, ourselves from attacking the other day. Team movie star. Yeah, well, I was just going to say there, maybe... I don't know whether this is true, but I would say with both Kamalama still being high up in GC, you know, a Dutch rider is used to riding in in crosswinds, you know, strong headwinds or tailwinds, whatever it mm-hmm. is. You know, Holland's no stranger to it to a strong breeze. Let's be honest. And I think with both Kamalama still being high up in in GC. They were looking after the GC guy the same way that just to you know segues back into your initial point, the way that Movie Star weren't. There you go. There was a wee bit of uh, confusion in my mind. The, the thought of Trek Segafredo and somebody high in the, the GC, we're going to have to get used to that, allegedly moving forwards. But my brain just doesn't compute with that as just now. But you're right, he's in fifth now, less than a minute back. So, you know, they did their work. Um, and the other thing is, you know, movie star, did you see the interview afterwards with Laura Messiger? With Alejandro Valverde. How he to deflect. delusional, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he was not best pleased with the questions that were being asked of him or was having any truck with actually answering them with, with uh, any honesty whatsoever. I mean, he was denying that... Nairo Quintana was left isolated today. I'm sorry, Alejandro, you'll need to have a, a sit down and have a good watch at that stage because, I mean, I, I noted at several points when Movistar were not anywhere near the front and right and teams like Trek, but especially Sky and Tinkov were there. Tinkov, of course, looking after the interests of, of Petr Sagan solely now, but, but Team Sky were there. And we had all the kind of jokes this morning about Movistar warming up and, and Team Sky warming up on the rollers and that even when doing so, Nairo Quintana would probably be limpet-like stuck to, to Chris Froome's back wheel. And that's what I was expecting to see all day. Nairo Quintana being very attentive because this has happened before to him and he absolutely, under no circumstances, should let Chris Froome out of his sight. What does he do all day? Sits, even when he is at the front, at completely the other side of the road. And and I had to to remark to you know long time listener good good friend of the show Dave Eberson Hurst that Quintana to me seems very one dimensional in his approach to his racing at the moment. This this surely couldn't have been a surprise to him. But what was really surprising and and actually made me quite angry was the fact that he was inattentive today. The one thing he had to do. Now I know that smaller guys really suffer in, in the wind and suffer when it comes to echelons. Guys like Richie Port and, and Naira Quintana especially, being so small, they're not big fans of riding in the wind. But the one thing that you don't do to hamstring yourself even further is don't pay attention to your main rival in GC. 
Yeah, and I was so disappointed with Movie Star as well. I mean, I've I've been guilty of talking them up, you know, talking up the fact that their teamwork's far better this year. They look like a far better drilled squad. Uh, you know, when we've seen them on the climbs, they've been very, very much like Team Sky and, you know, that US postal model of having super strong, dom- strong domestiques. And they were just nowhere today. And although Nairo was, as you say, completely inattentive, didn't look like he was paying attention to what was going on for... You know, not all the time, but for a significant amount of the time today and just was focused on staying upright in the wind. Once that wee group had gone and the chase was on, I really felt sorry for the wee guy because he kept drifting out from the line, you know, and having a bit look about to see, as if to say, where is everybody? Mm. You know, I'm, I'm on my toad here. And the only kind of comfort that he can take is having been taken to the cleaners, uh, tactically by Chris Froome today, he's still sitting in general classification only 35 seconds back, which, you know, if we have to assume, I mean, we have to assume, because Movie Star themselves has said they restrained themselves from attacking the other day. I'm going back to that because I know, talking to Ashley, that Greg Lamond was furious when they didn't attack in that penultimate climb on the stage to Arculus. You know, because you don't let opportunities go. And, the you know, Quintana himself looked super comfortable on that stage. But, you know, you have to assume that they were restraining themselves for a purpose. Now, it clearly wasn't to make a difference in the echelon strewn stage that we saw today. So it must be for the climbs later in the stage. And if he is so confident in his climbing ability, then maybe he'll be looking at it and thinking, 35 seconds, yeah, I can have that. You know, because if you think to that final stage where he actually did attack Chris Froome, you know, the final stage in the mountains last year, um, he was very capable riding in his own interests in the high mountains. So at least he's not too far back. Uh, But, I mean, if you look at it, even after today when we've had two hammer blows tactically from Chris Froome uh, and Team Sky, but particularly Froome because these have been largely solo efforts. Geraint Thomas did a, a, a noble bit of pulling today, but this is Froome's racing brain going. And, you know, I'm not a Team Sky fan, so if I'm heaping this much praise on them, you know that I'm really impressed. But if you look at that and then you compare it to... You know, that just the, the lethargy that seems to have grasped Nairo Quintana. He's gonna have to come out of the you know, come come out of the blocks like a, a greyhound after a hare or something when he he finally decides that the terrain suits him. Uh, well, if Greg was was angry with them the other day, I'm absolutely furious with them today because as I say, we could all see it coming. You know, round about that fifteen kilometre mark, I'm thinking, careful. This is going to go, you know, the peloton's getting strung out and Nairo Quintana movie star were, were nowhere to be seen. Getting back to, to the stage winner, though, a, a superb win by, by Peter Sagan. And I think the, the phrase a force of nature has been used many, many times to describe Peter Sagan, but no more so than today. A, a brilliantly taken win and... Even made you know doubly so by the fact that it was him that caused the split to to occur in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm actually not sure. We'll need to go back and see if it was Bodnar. Well, what I meant by that is you know it, it, you know Bodnar being a teammate, he was obviously sent to to attack mm-hmm. um, and and Petter to follow his will. So that that's kind of what I meant by you know it's a road captain deciding to yeah. to take that that move. I mean, what I would say is we can't actually say any more than the riders themselves are saying. You know, Thibaut Pino, one of the, I think, said today that he was 
one of the greatest riders he's ever seen. He can do anything on just about any terrain. Um, famously, uh, my uh, my favourite Tom Boonan had said, oh, he's just a sprinter who can do a bit more. I think Tom might be reconsidering a wee bit. Um, and I think we are seeing develop what we've been waiting to see for years. You know, he's, he's been in command of the green jersey to the point where they're actually trying to frame the competition against him. Uh, but for years we've been saying when the, you know when when that dam breaks he's going to win everything big time um, and what we oh we went old Donald Trump there big time um, what I think we're seeing is the growth into his, his full strength of Peter Sagan you know you got the Tour of Flanders earlier in the year and this tour he's playing I mean that's what he's doing you know he's winning stuff but he's playing he's having fun. He's just riding the way he wants to, and he's perfectly prepared to lose if it doesn't work, which is you know the mark of a great champion as well. They you know they need to win, but they are prepared to risk all, which is what we're noticing from the GC guys who aren't called Chris Room so far. And it wouldn't surprise the next two or three years for us to look at the you know the period and think, God, Sagan was even better than we thought he was going to be. You know, he's just a magnificent rider to watch, lovely bloke, and you know tactically so astute that he can be criticised for finish second quite a lot, as he did last year. But, you know, to, put, to finish second, you have to put yourself in a situation where you were really, really close to the win. And I think we're seeing the point where that's going to start to turn. You know, that's two stages already this year. I'd be amazed if it's the last. Quite so. The the reason I, I wanted to highlight Petr Sagan today wasn't, of course, to celebrate a, another brilliant stage win by him, but also that green jersey competition. I had an interesting discussion with uh, Neil Rogers, the, the American cycling journalist, just regarding the green jersey competition and Mark Cavendish's place in it. Because Neil, very astutely noted that Cavendish went for points at the intermediate sprint point and as he rightly put it it's hardly the actions of a man who was planning to retire before Paris now we touched upon this yesterday and at that point in the race after um, both Sagan and Cavendish had gone for for those sprint points there was a, a 40 point difference between them and I was agreeing with Neil saying, you know, maybe he believes now that he can do this, you know, do the double, win the green jersey in Paris and then go on to the Olympics to to get a gold medal in, in the Omnium. But he had a mechanical late on in the stage, which has really... Did he? Yes. Did he? He cost him dearly. I thought it was a puncture at first, but um, I'm giving yeah, now to, to. I think he just sat. Up. Oh, really? We're, I thought you were saying Diddy as in that I never noticed this. You think he sat up today? I don't know. Actually, I'm being slightly tongue in cheek there. I, I I completely agree with with what you were saying. It's what we talked about yesterday. I think he's still in this race because he's exceeding his expectations, and he thinks he's got a real chance of green. Otherwise, as you say, why the hell go for that intermediate sprint today? Um, and I think he got a bit of a kick in today and I, it wouldn't surprise me to see him go out soon. I mean, it genuinely wouldn't. It would sadden me, but we're moving into the kind of terrain where, um, you know, if the green jersey is biased towards anybody, it's it's moving towards Sagan territory. I think he's been, you know, Mark Cavendish has been magnificent in this Tour de France so far. You know, all of those stage wins, other than the one um, interesting hand gesture, he's comported himself with, with great dignity. He's been a great ambassador for, for Quebec and for the, the ethos behind the team. Uh, but I think today he, he looked in the you know, looked in the mirror as he neared that stage finish and thought, nah, you don't really look good in green anymore, mate. 
Well, I think if that is the, the case, then this evening would be the time to go because there's really no point in him hauling his splintered legs up Mont Ventoux. Um, and I would say that if if the green jersey is a lost cause to him now, because I'm just looking at the standings as they are now. I mentioned there was a 40-point difference halfway through the stage when both were contesting the um, the results at the intermediate sprint point. It's now, what, an 80, 90-point difference? 309 points to Petr Sagan, 219 to Mark Cavendish. So the end part of today's stage has really, really cost him dear. And I think a decision has to be made sooner rather than later as to whether he is prepared to suffer on stages like tomorrow and then the real, real hard effort that's going to be made through the Alps, which we've talked about before, is, you know, this tour being backloaded towards immensely difficult uh, stages, uh, whether he thinks he, he is capable of, of hauling that kind of deficit back by the time we reach Paris and then have what it takes to go on and get that gold medal that he so desperately, desperately wants um, from, from the Olympics. I'll be amazed if he stays on. I genuinely will. Having said that, you know, I'm amazed he's still here now. But I think he's surprised himself as much as he's surprised us and I genuinely can't see any plus points for him and battering his body if he's genuinely looking for that Olympic medal. And we have to remember, I mean, was it Chris Sidwell's today was saying that, you know, the Olympics are great, but this is the tour. But we have to remember that if that generation of Olympians, Cav's the one who still needs a gold on his mantle shelf, so I think it means a lot to him. Wouldn't surprise me to see him go home at all, because yeah. Peter, Peter Sagan's got this stitched up now unless he crashes. And uh, as I was saying to, to Chris when when he made that point earlier that it might be the case for us died in the wool cycling fans who who know nothing but cycling and and the importance of the tour and the importance of Mark having been world champion and the importance of Mark winning Milan San Remo but to the mainstream media in his home country all of these things mean very very little you know Mark Cavendish winning the green jersey in the in the Tour de France this year probably wouldn't make much of a ripple in, in the, the UK news cycle. Mark Cavendish winning a gold medal will. And I think... And make for, him far more likely to be in Strictly Come Dancing in five years. <laughs> no, I, I, won't, I want to complain about that. And I, I do so every year when, whenever I hear there's anybody in Strictly Come Dancing who's had previous dance experience. That's just not right. It's just not right. This isn't me getting in my soapbox of it strictly come dancing selection policy. All my- of these lovies have a dance experience. But, you know, all joking aside, it, it does actually, um, you know, it affects his post-career earnings. That's where I was going with that. Rather than strictly come dancing, I think for, for Mark's ability to, I mean, not only to satisfy himself, as you were saying about having that, that gold medal, to put him on, on some kind of parity with that, you know, the generation that he grew up with, but also, you know, raising his star in in the UK media and the potential for him to to earn much more after he finally hangs up the bike. I I agree, it is important to him, and I would love dearly to to see him go for both. But I think you're right, and I do believe that. Today will would be the the ideal, the optimum opportunity to say enough is enough. I need to go and concentrate on the track. And he's done his team a huge service this this tour by how he comported himself across the first week. 
I see we're just finished and the riders are clearly in a, a stroppy mood having been facing gross ones all day. Uh, we've got Simon Gerrans saying that was up there with the most dangerous Tour de France stages I've ever done. I was too scared to blink for three and a half hours. I think it's more the case of the wind just holding your eyelids open for three and a half hours than, than being <laughs> you've scared. Got Dan, you've got Dan Martin saying, thank you, Latour, for showing us the region's villages and their road furniture. Testament to rider skill, there weren't more crashes. I think you might have a point. You know, I, I think I was saying earlier about how the echelons were kind of nullified by the small towns and villages that the, the route took them through. There were a few hairy, narrow corners, you know, going across little bridges and suddenly there was a sharp right-hand turn where very steep houses bordered tiny, tiny pavements and not enough room for a rampaging peloton to, to go through. So I, I kind of, I feel that Dan Martin actually might be onto something there. There was a lot of bunny hopping going on, certainly. Yeah, and even on wider roads, there, you know, those, those big, huge uh, roundabouts that we often see towards the the entrances to, to bigger towns, as you say, a, a lot of kind of raised pavements and bunny hopping going on by, you know, dozens upon dozens of riders. I mean, it, it was a fascinating stage. It showed us some of the, the best bits of France. But what I think it's done beautifully is set us up for tomorrow. Uh, because, you know, I, Chris Froome has made a big effort today. But what everybody forgets, I've seen a lot of people saying that was a big effort from Froome the day before, you know, on two. And we'll talk about the status of on two, you know, when we preview the, the stage uh, for tomorrow. But what people have to remember is that other than that brief effort to make the break, you know, what's the old adage about bike racing? You only have to go faster than the rest of the peloton for 10 yards and then go at the same speed, you know, so that you've got the break and then all you have to do is maintain it. He was sitting riding behind a superbly strong Bodner, a Geraint Thomas who was prepared to bury himself for his team leader, and a Peter Sagan who is clearly on the form of his life just now. Now, Froome, it's got to be said, put in exactly his fair share of work. You know, he, he satisfied that uh, Scott O'Raw fairness quotient <laughs> that, you have, that you have in a breakaway. He was at the front, he was getting stuck in. Uh, but what people have to remember is that although Froome was out for, in front fighting, which you know, remember, it gives him a good line through roundabouts, that street furniture we're talking about. It gives him a much safer approach and a finale that could have been really dangerous if it had been a bunch sprint because the guys were tired all day and their concentration may be starting to lapse after all that street furniture that Dan Martin was talking about. But the guys behind had the worry of being in a big pack and were having to work just a bit as hard as Froome was just to try and catch him. So, you know, he didn't put himself at any disadvantage for tomorrow. He did the yellow jersey proud and uh, Killian will have the stat for this. He's pro I think he's already tweeted it. When's the last time we saw on a normal road stage the green jersey and the yellow jersey in first and second in a Tour de France stage? Well, it would be a good point if it wasn't for the fact that you know, you have to say that today's stage was anything but normal. It may look normal on paper. You look at the, I, I, the I parkour. Kill, sorry, I knew Killian would have tweeted it. I just knew. Eddie Merckx and Patrick Serku in 1974. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> and, and you've unwittingly actually contradicted or poo-pooed one of your, your own big heroes there because I understand Chris Boardman speaking after the stage was saying that, oh, he was worried that uh, Froome would have expended too much energy 
Yeah, sorry, Chris, that's bollocks. Yeah, well, I was, I was thinking exactly the same. You know, if if a potential and, and actually defending Tour de France champion is expending too much energy in that final, what was it, 11 kilometres, then something seriously, seriously wrong there. Yeah, I defer to Chris Boardman and absolutely everything. The guy is genuinely one of, you know, he's up there in the top echelon of cyclists I admire. But the guys behind were having no magic, magic carpet ride to the line. And Froome was arguably in a safer position than any of them working in a small group in that run-in. So I don't think it'll affect him at all tomorrow. You know, maybe Chris is trying to build up the atmosphere a wee bit because he expects Froome to crush it tomorrow. And he's, you know, trying to just get a bit of, uh, bit of controversy going. But no, I think Chris Froome stood himself in good great stead as we move towards uh, what's going to be a fascinating stage tomorrow wherever it finishes it's now that point in the show where we cross to style icon and bon vivant ashley house to get his thoughts on today's thrilling stage Welcome as ever to Ashley House uh, from a frankly shell-shocked, I would imagine, backstage at the Tour de France 2016. Um, that was quite a surprising stage, Ashley. It really was, wasn't it, John? Yeah, good evening, everybody. Uh, you say shell-shocked backstage. Uh, we were outside the Skybus, and when we arrived before we went on air and before all the riders got back, literally seconds before, this, all the, the Sky staff were pretty shell-shocked as well. Rod Ellingworth turned to us and said, there was a moment I thought Chris Froome was going to out-sprint Peter Sagan. And there was a moment when I thought he might as well, but actually uh, the way that Sagan just comfortably rolled past Chris really shows the different kinds of riders there are. But what an exciting stage, what an amazing finish, unexpected as you say, and what a great tour we've got. Yeah, and there was a point during the, the breakaway in the very early bits um, where Sagan seemed to turn to Froome and say, are we having this? And Froome just kind of nodded. And that was on top of some huge excitement with echelons earlier in the day. I mean, we expected uh, there might be problems with the echelons, but we were kind of leaning towards a sprint stage. But, you know, GC action on what at best could be considered a, a, a transitional stage that was hard if the wind blew. And movie star, I think, were caught wanting today. They were, and I think you're right. I mean, obviously, it was a transitional stage. It uh, could be hard if the wind blew. Firstly, the wind definitely did blow a lot. The the echelons were pretty good. There, there were lots of people posting on Twitter um, some pictures at about, I think it was about 72, 73K to go, and mm. there were some great pictures of echelons. The only sadness, I suppose, is the maximum gaps that they got within that elastic were about 20 seconds, and I was talking to Greg Lemond while we were watching, and he said, you need a minute, really. Uh, you need those gaps to be a minute before it before it becomes utterly impossible to get them back. Um, but certainly, we didn't expect the finish we saw. And when uh, when Bodnar went with Sagan, and then the two, and then uh, the two Skyriders, Geraint and Chris, went with them, you suddenly, you suddenly thought this is just going to be good. And you're absolutely right. They talked. They they all looked at each other. They said, "Shall we do it?" They went, "Yeah, I got it. Let's do it." And you were talking after the stage to Dave Brailsford. Um, was he surprised? Dave is, uh, there's an underlying um, feeling with Dave that I haven't really seen before. In the, in the past, Sky of Controls and so on. I think we, we saw last year, it got to them a little bit that people said they weren't entertaining. Um, it's not their job to entertain, it's their job to win. However, Dave these days, uh, this, this tour rather, is absolutely right. Actually, it's Sky who's entertaining. And he said to us today, tonight, he said, you know, we're the guys riding on the front. We want to win the race. We're not waiting around. And I get the feeling he's getting, not annoyed necessarily, but he's, actually, you know, maybe he is getting a bit annoyed. He's sort of saying, you know, like we all are in a way, I suppose, if nobody else wants to do this, we're going to do it. 
Now, whether or not in the end that means that Sky will, end, will do have done too much work, I don't know. But he did also say, you know, isn't it making for an interesting race? And I have to say, for anyone who's still criticizing Sky, saying they're making it boring, you know, we, we haven't seen Sky controlling quite as much on the crimes because they haven't needed to, and we haven't seen that many crimes yet. But good Lord, we've seen Chris Froome winning on a descent. We've now seen him finish second on a flat stage. And they're definitely not boring this year. No, absolutely no. And, you know, I've, I've actually had someone say to me this afternoon that, you know, this isn't great racing because it's a foregone conclusion. Even if Froome wins, you know, we're 11 stages in. There's less than, what, 58 seconds or something covering the top eight. And TJ Van Garderen in 11th is only 113 back or something. Everything's still to play for. I'm just seeing the news just now that um, it's official that we're shortening the stage to finish at Chalet Renard tomorrow. And in the back of my mind, part of me was thinking that maybe Froome went on the attack today because he's missing those last kilometres where he could make a big difference tomorrow. It may be. I mean, none, none, I don't know whether he would have been told that on, on the radio. Just, I guess he might have been told it's a possibility. But I, I actually think Chris just is an opportunist, as well as being incredibly thorough and dedicated and all, all the other things that we know about him. But he's, he's definitely not a robotic-type rider. Uh, and we've seen that this year much more. And I think he's genuinely an opportunist. I think we saw it down to Bonnier's Illusion the other day, and I think we've seen it today as well. It's a shame we're not going to the top of Vontu tomorrow, but obviously the rider's safety does come first. It's only 6K lower at Chalet Renard. So there's still an opportunity. So it reduces, <coughs> excuse me, it reduces some of the uh, the distance of the of the climb of the Tourmalet, but it, it won't affect too much the difference. I suppose it might just mean that everyone has to act a little bit earlier, or I suppose it might neutralise that climb. But I hope not. Um, a few years ago, they, they uh, truncated the Etape de Tour, uh, which was finishing at Vontu at Chalet Renard for the very same reason. The winds were too high once you cleared the, the tree line. And I, I can tell you, talking to a lot of my friends who rode it, it's still a climb where you can make a hell of a difference up through the forest. So I think we'll see fireworks tomorrow. Yeah, plus, the other thing which I hadn't even thought of, which Juan Antonio talked about on the show, was if the winds are as high as they are today... Um, then actually it's going to be very, very interesting even before we get to the bottom of the Tourmalet. And he said that some of the GC guys might find themselves a long way back. And if, if Nairo Quintana, for example, to, who today, there was one shot when, when the four at the front were, were going away a bit more. Their maximum gap, I think, was about 28, 30 seconds mm-hmm. by, by memory. And at, at about that point, this camera panned back and you saw Nairo Quintana all on his own and he looked round. He actually looked around, looking for teammates. There was nobody there. He was in the wind as well. There was nobody. He, was, he wasn't behind anyone's wheel. He wasn't protected or drafting in any way. And if that happens tomorrow before the start of the climb, then tomorrow might be a really bad day for them. Yeah, absolutely. If they start that climb having to make up a deficit, then who knows what will happen. I mean, we saw Laura talking to Alejandro Valverde and he seemed in denial. You know, he said, no, you know, Nairo wasn't isolated. I knew where he was and he knew where I was. Might as well have been at the tackle van. I mean, there was absolutely no one around Nairo Quintana when he needed the most and he kept looking for people and was agitated on the bike. You know, he was moving on the bike to try and get up through the field, but he had no teammates around him at all. I think, um, you know, Chris Froome, as he did the other day, without making that long an effort, because this is a very manageable period of effort for a pro cyclist, has made a difference that it's as much mental damage to his competitors as physical in time because they can't, you know, they can't relax. They don't know where he'll attack. 
Yeah, exactly. And that, that's, that, that's the thing about the opportunism as well. And, you know, as, as Juan Antonio was saying on, on the show tonight, you only have to win it by a second. You know, ask mm. Greg LeMond how much you have to win the Tour de France by to have the yellow jersey in Paris. It's just a few seconds. One second is enough. And every second that Chris takes, you know, another six bonus seconds today. I know they're only tiny bits. It was 20 seconds nearly on, uh, down to Bannier de Luchon, but they all add up. And pretty soon it could be a minute if he does it again. And, uh, and obviously, little by little by little. But I think psychologically, you're right. I think it's not just that he's, that he's able to grab those seconds. I think it's also that he's showing everyone else. He's going, you know, actually, I'm pretty strong. I'm pretty strong descending. I'm pretty strong in the wind. You know, what have you got, boys? Yeah, and I bet, I bet Greg's loving this. I mean, this is the exact contrast to movie star who restrained themselves from attacking the other day. Yeah, Greg really enjoyed watching today's day, Stephanie, but Greg will want, I can absolutely tell you now, Greg will definitely want movie stars to do something tomorrow. So final question for today. Um, do the entire peloton now just throw up their hands and surrender whenever Peter Sagan goes out the front? He looks like a motorcycle <laughs> today. He's, he's amazing, you know. Uh, again, when I tell you on the show today, it, it's not just that he's a great champion, but he's really entertaining. He's great to watch on the bike. He's a, fan, a phenomenal world champion to have on the pro cycling tour at the moment. And uh, it, it's just a joy to watch him. And how he has the energy to finish so high up in, uh, in, on, ev- on pretty much every stage that we've seen, bar the really, really mountainous ones, and still be the one who makes the difference out the front and trying to get in the break within the first few col- kilometres after kilometre zero. It's amazing. And still be there at the end. And it's him who's pushing and him who's driving the whole thing. It's extraordinary. And when you saw Chris, as I said, go for a little sprint, you just saw Peter go, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever, free me. Bye-bye. <laughs> I think they both looked like they were having fun. I mean, again, they turned to each other and you could see through and essentially say, right, let's have at this. Um, I, I just, yeah. It reminded me so much of what I love about bike racing, you know, when Greg and Bernardino were winding each other up and all that kind of stuff. This is, this is a classic Tour de France, and I've got no idea who's going to win now. No, I don't either. I really don't. It's, it's, ever so, it's ever so easy to say, oh, Chris Froome's in front again. You know, same old story. As you said, someone said to you on Twitter, but that is anything but the case for this Tour de France, in my opinion. So where can people find you, Ashley? <laughs> uh, myself and Juan Antonio Fletcher are before and after every stage. Greg LeMond and I are every evening at 9 o'clock European time, 8 o'clock in the UK for Le Tour by Le Monde. And I'm tweeting Ashley on Twitter. And by the sounds of it, we may currently find Ashley in the back of a police van. So the top 10 on today's stage. Petr Sagan takes the win ahead of Chris Froome and Majic Bodnar. In fourth place was Alexander Kristoff at six seconds who led home the pack with Kristoff Laporte taking fifth, Jasper Stuyven in sixth, Edvard Bosenhagen came in in seventh, Andre Greipel in eighth, Sondra Holst-Enger in ninth and rounding out the top 10 was Olivia Nason from EAM Cycling. Changes to the general classification after stage 11 are as follows. Chris Froome now leads Adam Yates by 28 seconds, Dan Martin in third by 31 seconds, Nara Quintana in fourth by 35 seconds, Baukamolema is in fifth at 56 seconds, along with Roman Bardet in sixth and Sergio Hanau in seventh. Alejandro Valverde now sits in eighth at 1 minute 13, along with Teji van Garderen in ninth. Rounding out the GC top 10 is Roman Kreuzig at 1 minute and 28. 
Tomorrow sees the Tour return to the giant of Provence, Mont Ventoux. The 184km stage 12 takes the riders from today's finished town, Montpellier, further along the Mediterranean course before turning northwards after 105km to tackle the twin peaks of the Côte de Gordes and the Col de Trois-Ternes. From there, all eyes will be on the horizon as the ominous bulk of Ventoux itself looms ever closer. And even with the 11th hour decision by ASO to curtail the finish some 6 kilometres below its summit, the wooded section below Chalet Renard will still make this one certainly not to be missed. I think I've got ominous bulk trademarked. Ominous bulk, have you? <laughs> I, do you know I'm so making you a t-shirt that just says ominous bulk? That's what Ilsa says when she sees me coming through the door. <laughs> anyway, um, moving swiftly along. I've seen a lot of disappointment that we're missing the moonscape that is the last five or six K of Vong 2. Okay, can I, can I be permitted a tish and pish to that assertion? Well, that's just exactly where I'm going. The climb up to Charlie Renard is hard, you know, through the woods. Absolutely brutal. I mean, you only need to think back to... Do you remember on the stage, which will be on everybody's lips, where... Uh, which resulted in the Padicado from He Who Must Not Be Named and the, the Super Strop from Marco Pantani. The number of times Marco was off the back through the forest and then, you know, struggled to get back on. Um, that is a hard climb up to Chalet Renard and it'll be raced differently. Mm. I mean, I'll, the one thing, it won't be raced the same way it would be if we were going up to that, you know, the meteor station at the top of of uh, Vong 2, but it will still be raced and it will still make a difference. And if you have the kind of wins we had today on the approach you could be looking at a whole new ball game, particularly if uh, movie star are just as inattentive as they were today. It's um, it's not the iconic Vaughn 2, but it's still a hell of a climb and there will be full-on racing up it. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're still talking about, what, 15, 18 kilometres of climbing? Yeah, but, and hard, I mean, hard yeah, climbing. It's, yeah. you know, the, the, the moonscape bit's really the icing on the cake. Um and it's raced accordingly. You know, if they if they knew they were going to finish at Chalet Renard, you'll see them digging deep far earlier. So it's still going to be a brilliant stage, even if we miss out on those iconic images. Movistar. Really, we have to, after today's events, I think we have to look at what we anticipate from, from Movistar tomorrow, because I believe that, that Nairo Quintana has to do something. We, we know that the race is backloaded with difficult stages, but as you rightly mentioned earlier, Valverde looked rattled by Laura Messager's question regarding what happened today. And, you know, they, they certainly weren't expecting to have lost time last week when with Chris Froome's descent, and I don't believe they were expecting to lose it today. So... If they have a plan which says do nothing until certain key points in the Alps, then they're already 35 seconds further away from that plan than they had projected for. Now, I I don't care how good this no one will expect the movie star Inquisition plan actually is. That should be a worry for Naira Quintana. And if it's not, he's like today not been paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the very least, Nairo has to finish and, you know, inside Chris Froome's bib shorts. <laughs> Thank you, you know, for he, that really troubling image. <laughs> he has to be. It would look no worse than many bib shorts we've seen on podiums over the years, particularly red ones. But, you know, he has to be right on Froome's wheel at the very least, lose no time at all. Anything less than that, and, you know, you start to ask very serious questions. Ideally, I'd like to see him, you know, maybe 
just maybe think about using the climbing prowess that he's got in attacking because they've lost time that I bet they, as you say they didn't plan to, to lose um, and you know, if they have a plan that they're sticking so, to so slavish, slavishly that they can afford to give away time they better be damn impressive but I I, I really hope we see Nairo step it up tomorrow because it's his kind of terrain you know, it's his kind of climb he should be able to make a difference so minimum level I'm setting is he finishes with Chris Froome I hope he takes some time off him. Or, you know, otherwise we'll start to get some answers. And to move away from the the duo that a lot of people, of course, are expecting to fight out the, the Tour de France for 2016, who else would you be looking at to actually maybe unexpectedly do something to tomorrow and, and upset that, that top two? Do you know, the only people who I'd, I'd absolutely rule out, and even there I wouldn't rule them out going for the stage, are, are Thibaut Pino and, and Vincenzo Nibali. And it might actually be that this is, you know, Nibali will have a big dig tomorrow. When you look at the other guys, uh, Richie Port lost that time with that puncture, but has been absolutely solid as a rock up until now. Uh, TJ's relatively close, just a minute and a handful of seconds back. But any of those guys in the top 10 could make a difference. You know, we've seen Roman Bardi be incredibly impressive. I'm really excited to see how Adam Yates performs as as the road turns upwards again. You know, he's been a real revelation in this tour. Dan Martin has exceeded our expectations. He's been really, really strong. And, you know, there's loads of guys who could have a dig tomorrow. And the fact that you know, we're talking about a top two, and Brailsford and Sky themselves have said we'll worry about our main opponent, you know, in the singular, which is clearly Nairo Quintana. The fact that we're less than a minute for the first eight means if anybody has a super day tomorrow, or Chris Froome and Nairo Quintana have a bad day, you know, that could easily turn on its head. If Chris Froome disappears up the road with his washing machine, then that's fair enough. But, you know, I don't think this tour's over. You know, it's too close, there's too much that can happen, and there are too many people who look entirely capable of making an attack stick. So, you know, moonscape or not, I'm gagging for tomorrow. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Yep, and we've got to consider as well that it's the 14th tomorrow, 14th of July, Bastille Day. Bar day. Then, oh, you took the words right out of my mouth. I'm, I'm really, really hoping Bar Day is going to go for it tomorrow. I don't think you'll be allowed the room, as you say, with the first eight. You know, Roman Bardi sitting in six at just 56 seconds. He won't be given much, if any, room for, for manoeuvre. Um, so, I don't know, maybe Thibaut Pino going going for it as a kind of consolation. He's, he's been wearing the polka dot jersey with a plum, so maybe one that he could say, you know, a big win big French rider while wearing the polka dot jersey would be cracking to see but uh, I'm like yourself John cannot wait for tomorrow and cutting the icing off the top of the cake doesn't you know take away anything from that enthusiasm and expectation of cracking racing tomorrow so who's going to win? Um, I, I think for I mean I, I, as a francophile myself, I would as I say would really love to see either Pino or Bardet take the win to keep the race open and alive. Nairo Quintana to take some time back on on Froome, but at the minute I just can't see that happening. So I'm I'm going to go for Bardet. I'm going to go for Nairo Quintana. Okay. Um, before we finish, actually, there's a few snippets. 
Um, the first is that we have to salute our, our, our British political system and acknowledge the fact that for a brief period of time today, the Queen was actually in charge of the entire country. Um, so I think she should have declared war on America and France, and that would have added some extra spice to tomorrow's Bastille Day. Um, but in cycling news... Sorry, I thought we'd, we'd I'd wandered into an episode of Mock the Week there. What? <laughs> it's true, because David Cameron had resigned and Theresa May hadn't been appointed yet. So the Queen could actually have declared war on France. Uh, but in cycling news, um, Oleg Tinkoff talking to Norwegian TV has... As far as I can see, just let it slip that Peter Sagan's definitely signed for Bora, which is quite an interesting thing. And the other thing is, you know, we had the two riders who were really pissed off with the parkour today. Mm-hmm. They're lining up now. It's tweet-tastic on how unhappy people were today. So, um, you know, it's it's a good day for cycling gossip as well as a good day for cycling racing. And, you know, Yo Quinn, I'll try that again, and Yay Queen Liz. Just in, in reference to... I'm moving away from the Yay Queen Liz thing. I'm I'm slightly shocked and stunned to hear that. But going back to the riders now appearing left, right and centre to cast aspersions on today's stage, what were they expecting to have, you know, ASO to to do? Stop the stage completely? Also, there's a road, but it wasn't the wind, it was the furniture. Um, You know, so... Oh, I see they're complaining about the parkour itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're they're really unhappy, and actually, you know, although in a certain extent we're making a wee bit light of it, um, we have to bear in mind the horrible things that have happened. You know, like Peter Stetner hitting that street furniture would have been so easy today. So once again, you know, flippancy aside. If they're doing all this morning, maybe it's time for a riders' union that actually has some teeth. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I was just clear, clearing up. I thought they were complaining about the the, um, the the wind today, and I thought, well, hang on, I didn't think it was that dangerous. But as I said earlier on, I think Dan Martin has has a point about the, yeah. the, the street furniture. Well, time for a riders' union. Well, thank you for joining us today. As we saw, Peter Sagan and Chris Froome score highly in the Riding with Panache Stakes, and Nairo Quintana riding with less than due care attention. Join us again tomorrow to discuss what will be a crucial stage at this year's tour in another edition of The Velocast. <laughs>